Welcome to the Power Trends Podcast, produced by the New York Independent System Operator, where we discuss energy planning, public policy, and other issues affecting New York's power grid. Hello and welcome to the Power Trends Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lanahan, Vice President, External Affairs and Corporate Communications at the New York Independent System Operator. And today we welcome the return of Wes Yeomans, our Vice President of Operations. Wes earned his electrical engineering degree from Clarkson University. He holds an MBA from Syracuse University. He's been with the NISO for more than 10 years, has more than three decades of energy industry experience in all, working previously for National Grid and Niagara Mohawk. That's where I first met Wes all those years ago. During his last podcast appearance, Wes and I discussed the unique experience of our grid operators as they sequestered on site at the NISO headquarters during the early days of the pandemic. But today we're going to talk about the summer. We record this on the first full day of fall. So, um, Wes, over to you. Can you give us a sense now that summer is behind us of where this, this uh, summer stacks up in terms of, of previous summers and what we did to maintain reliability on the system. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. And hopefully we are past summer of 2021. <laughs> uh, you never know. You could have a doesn't wave feel like it out there. in uh, late, eight, late September or early October, but it's not likely and it won't be impactful. So, yes, we're past the summer. In comparison to other past summers, starting with just total loads or what I refer to as throughput every hour for every day across the month, May was was pretty close to average. June, it seems like it was three months ago, uh, we did have a lot of hot weather in June, a lot of 90-degree days, uh, maybe more so in central New York and Albany than uh, New York City. So June total loads were above average. In fact, late in June, we had our peak, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Moving on to July, all of a sudden, the weather in New York and the Northeast changed. We had two weeks of a tremendous amount of rain, which dampened the loads in July. And then the last two weeks of July, just cool weather, especially upstate. So July was well below average, but then it turned around quick around August 1st, and we had a lot of hot weather in New York and the Northeast in August, and it it continued in September. So June, September, and August were above average, and July was below. Getting on to the peaks, we had four instances, only for a couple days, of some hot weather. We had some in early June, late June early August and late August. So four instances of hot weather, but for short time frames. In the past, we've had heat waves that lasted six, seven, eight, nine days. That was not the case this summer. And I'll offer no particular blistering hot weather. You know, we watch the rest of the country. We see Texas go to uh, anywhere from Mm -hmm. 110 and 115 degrees. We see uh, what was Southern California, but lately it seems like Northern California and Minnesota going to 105, 110, and 115. We watched the jet stream. We just wonder uh, what would conditions be in New York if it ever went to 115. We have not seen that before. So we have paid attention, but we certainly did not have blistering hot weather like the rest of the country. And we did have two tropical storms that I'll talk about later. Yeah. And, and remind our listeners what our all-time peak is. It's 33,956 megawatts. And it was a very hot summer day at the end of a seven-day heat wave back in the year 2013. And when we had less behind-the-meter solar. And this year's peak, well off of that, but uh, it, was, it was an atypical summer. You mentioned the tropical storms. We didn't set any records for demand in that respect, but there were these unusual circumstances that kept us and, and the control room operators on our toes. Talk about how we dealt with those storms and prepared for those events. 
Yeah. Regarding the peak load for this summer, it was late June. That's a little bit unusual. We tend to peak in the July, August time frame. Our experiences early in the summer wave hot weather, a lot of customers don't yet have all their air conditioner units into the windows. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after a couple heat waves early in the summer, uh, customers start to install those and it could be half a million, it could be a million, and that contributes to the peak. So it was unusual that we did peak in late June. I thought we'd have some hot weather in August where we'd beat that. We did have some hot weather, but late in those days we had rain showers and so forth. So, uh, So that was just a little bit unusual with that. Let's see, and then we had uh, some transmission outages down into Long Island. We had a fair amount of generator derate issues and forced outages on the generation supply side and things like that. And so when we deal with these kinds of events, the, the tropical storms, especially with the outages that you mentioned, looking at the future and a more intermittent system and the investments that we're driving towards as a state in uh, intermittent resources, anticipate any new challenges arising? based on that different fuel mix we might anticipate? Yes, we're all aware of the state policy to integrate a much larger amount of renewable generation, and that's a great thing, great thing for the environment. And uh, certainly we can make that work on the electric system, but there's a lot of things that we're going to have to enhance. First of all, forecasting of all resources is always important, but especially renewables that are intermittent in nature. And there's a couple different time frames. One is in the day ahead time frame. So on a Tuesday, we need to be scheduling the Wednesday resources. And we need to know, is Wednesday going to be a windy day? Or is it going to be a sunny day? Or is it going to be a cloudy day? Or is the wind not going to be there? And that'll dictate a lot of the commitments for the, the next day. So the first big challenge is forecasting. Uh, we, we are very good at that. But if you say we had uh, a couple thousand of renewables today, but maybe 10 to 15,000 in a couple years, it gets to be more and more important. We can be off 10% today, and that's 100 megawatts. If we're off 10% three years from now, that could be a couple thousand megawatts we miss. So we have to be very good at that. But I'll also offer, we need to be prepared for forecasting, but a situation where maybe the wind kind of uh, slows down or disappears for three weeks. That's a different issue than slowing down two hours from now. If it's two hours from now and we have sufficient other resources to pick up, we can handle that. But if we lost wind or if we had a lot of clouds for three weeks, now when our portfolio is 10 to 15 to 20,000 megawatts of those resources and you lose the sun because of clouds or the wind, then that gap needs to be made up with other resources. Now you start out with storage devices and of course state policy is integrating a lot more storage time will tell how much we achieve of that. If it's a massive amount, of course, we can make this work. If it's a limited amount, we're going to need to rely on other types of solutions. So that development is important, and the speed of that development is going to be important. In the meantime, you mentioned the the wind lulls, and we've experienced some of that over this summer. And the story is evolving in Europe, where they've had uh, consistent wind lulls there with corresponding increase in price of natural gas and less supply. So, I mean, that's almost a cautionary tale for how we get to the 2030 and 2040 goals here. Are there any lessons learned coming out of this summer uh, that might be applied going forward that jump out at you? Yeah. So when I reflect back on the last three months, first of all, it was our first summer with both Indian Point and Indian Point 2 and Indian Point 3 offline. It's going to get to that. Offline. Everybody wants to know. Like, yeah. what, was, what was the experience so, uh, like now that that was not there? Yeah, so uh, Indian Point 2 uh, exited the market going into last summer, 2020. So we had that first 1,000 megawatt gap then and then another 1,000 this summer. Now, some of that's been made up with some other um, uh, generators. 
with some additional renewable development. But at the end of the day, that was a lot. So that was a different set of power flows on the transmission system in southeastern New York, a different set of generator commitments. Quite frankly, a lot of that had to be made up and picked up with existing New York uh, generating resources, primarily in New York City and Long Island. Some of it's made up with either reduced exports out of New York or increased imports into New York from PJM or New England. So it's a combination. But the majority of that did need to be made up with existing generators. So um, I, I want to shift a little bit to, to transmission here. And we know about the big storms that we had to deal with, but then there were a series of other smaller storms, but those have quite an impact. When we issue, and this goes back to the origins of the, of the organization and the legacy of the organization under, under the power pool, but when, when a thunderstorm, you're going to remind me what the exact term is. Is it a thunderstorm alert emergency on the transmission for the transmission system? And we can no longer count on for reliability and safety purposes, those transmission lines coming down the Hudson Valley. Talk us through what that kind of a situation is like, because that has a real impact on um, how the system is maintained and, and run in New York City. It's almost like that part of the system is cut off from the transmission system above it. So if you could just walk listeners through that. Certainly. So unfortunately, the history of the background is in 1977, a set of thunderstorms went through the lower Hudson Valley section of New York State, and there were several lightning strikes and unfortunately several overhead transmission line uh, trips, which at that time were carrying a tremendous amount of free-flowing AC electricity into New York City in Long Island. And with the loss of many of those lines in a short amount of time, unfortunately, New York City blacked out a a terrible event at the time. Very shortly after that, our legacy organization, the New York Power Pool and the New York Public Service Commission and the the utilities primarily kind of worked together to quickly come up with a, a thunderstorm alert declaration. And that is impactful to the dispatch of resources in New York. So when dark clouds are forecasted in the Westchester area and even north of Westchester, and by the way, the lightning strikes, of course, are only impactful to the overhead lines. Once the overhead transmission lines get very close to New York City, they go underground. So the issue is not thunderstorms or lightning strikes in Manhattan and Queens. The issue is actually further upstate now, maybe not all the way to Albany and Syracuse. But in that particular corridor, that is the issue. So the thunderstorm alert, is a different set of um, dispatch signals that we send to generators. And it's as simple as the signals pick up generation in New York City and Long Island and back down generation further upstate. And if you can have less power flow on several overhead lines, you're more secure and more reliable should you have one or more lightning strikes. So if the lines are carrying a tremendous amount of electricity and you lose a bunch of lines, that can create the need for load shedding or blackout. If you back those off and use local generation, in that area that makes the system more secure for those laws. So the New York ISO, really through the Reliability Council, they developed a local rule and then we operate to that reliability rule. And that was the thunderstorm alert that we picked up from our legacy organization. All right, that, that's, that's really helpful. So when those get issued, what decisions are made to make sure that uh, we're getting the, the supply we need for New York City? So in the simplest form, the the thunderstorm alert dispatch will pick up additional generation in New York City. And those today and for the past several decades came from legacy steam generators in New York City, a legacy single cycle gas turbines, some new, some old, and combined cycle generators, some old and some new in New York City. So there's a combination of different 
types of legacy generators with different fuel cost structures. A little bit of um, interaction with the imports and exports with New Jersey, of course, and maybe Connecticut. So it's not 100% those units, but it's primarily picking up those legacy existing units today and backing down generation in upstate. And that's how it works today. And we'll have to uh, make this work, of course, when we move to the future with a higher amount of whether it's offshore wind or storage in New York City or solar on Long Island. This all has to work as we move to renewables. But we have to be secure for lightning strikes in the lower Hudson Valley for sure. And we're seeing now the the most significant upgrades in the transmission system probably um, at least since the 1980s, but maybe even beyond. So how is that going to change how the systems operated and the decisions that the operators are making in the control room. And now, of course, we we just coming off the heels of an announcement by Governor Hochul to build two more major transmission projects in the state. Observations there? Yeah. So just like you said, there's three sets of public policy, additional transmission coming over the next couple of years. Uh, All three of those uh, projects are under construction today. A significant project in Western New York, a significant project really where the binding constraint is between uh, central New York and eastern New York, and then even some upgrades, significant transmission upgrades in downstate. So for today, while that's underway, there's a lot of existing transmission outages that are needed to facilitate the construction of the new transmission. So when the new transmission's done, we're going to all be way better off for this. We'll have more transmission capability across the state and into New York City So when we're done, this is going to be great. But in the meantime, when you uh, build a new line, if you're working near another line, you need to schedule an outage. If you're connecting to a substation, you need to take outages in the substation, make those connections. If you're out in the right of way, it can require. So it's actually been hectic in operations, coordinating in a reliable manner as to how many existing lines we can take out to facilitate construction of new lines. And we have to always be secure for a, a lightning strike or the next contingency. But we're, we're, doing, uh, we're actually doing a great job. So, Wes, as we said, this is the first day of fall. So, uh, summer behind us, I know you're already looking at winter. Tell us what you're uh, going to do from here forward. Every fall, we um, do generator outreach with, with mm-hmm. um, on-site visits to um, review their, their plans and their maintenance to be prepared for winter. We review their fuel situation. Um, we have very rigorous procedures and processes to understand how much oil inventory is on-site how much is in storage that can be delivered, how much isn't purchased but can be purchased on the spot market quickly, or maybe they have a bar job that they can get made available in 12 hours. So a lot of rigorous work in understanding each generator asset's fuel situation on the liquid oil side, but then more so on the natural gas side, like who has gas transportation service that can be interrupted on cold days if it's interruptible and not firm. And, um, then who does have firm uh, capability Mm -hmm. and just trying to pay attention as to what we believe we can get. And the other thing, Kevin, about the winter is if every cold snap was just one day, it's actually pretty easy because units can replenish their fuel. And if um, the burn rate of fuel does not exceed the replenishment rate, it just isn't a problem. The issue is what if we have a seven-day cold snap or a 10-day or a 12-day? And in that time period, generation is burning fuel faster than the trucks and the barges and the pipelines can deliver, that's where you can get yourself in trouble. So we're doing more fuel assurance, but more looking out 7 to 10 to 13 days than we have in the past. We're certainly looking harder at the energy that we expect, and not just on fossil units. What's the energy we're going to get on the wind farm? What's the energy we're going to get from the solar? 
And not only what is that energy we're going to get tomorrow, what are we going to get 12 days from now? And today, at 2,000 megawatts of wind, we don't need to know how much wind we're going to get 12 days from now. But three years from now, when they've displaced many of the other fossil units, we are going to need to know how much wind do we think we can expect 12 days from now, as an example. The other contrast I'll make between summer and winter is that the challenges are different. In the summer, at this point in time, before we have the winter load growth, the challenge is, quite frankly, the peak load in the summer is every bit of nine or 10,000 megawatts higher than the winter peak. So the challenge in the summer is making sure we can get online committed and running another 10,000 megawatts than a cool day or than a winter peak day. So it's quantity in energy and capacity in the summer. In the winter, the peak at this point in time is only about 24,000 megawatts. That's not very high. We have 38,000 megawatts of capacity in New York State. It should be the easiest thing in the world, but for the fuel situation, or even cold weather equipment failures. So the challenges, there's challenges in both. The challenges are different in the winter. And then as we know, there are projections that the winter load is gonna start to increase with electrification. And even to the point where it may surpass the summer peak, that would be amazing. And I started with Niagara Mohawk in 1984. And at that time, Niagara Mohawk and Nicer were actually winter peaking utilities, not summer just because they had so many um, customers with electric baseboard. You know, they had millions of customers with heated their home with electric. Well, that kind of moved away to oil and natural gas within a couple of decades. But now it's going full circle, coming back to where, at least upstate and probably downstate, at some point, five or 10 or 15 years from now, the winter peak load could exceed the summer. And that's so we have all today's challenges we're going to have to uh, be very good at. And then what other flexibility and resources will we need to meet that load in the winter? Well, we get the question often, what are the differences between Texas, in lessons learned after what happened last winter with Texas and the differences. I'd like to just highlight one of of the things that you mentioned, all the study work that has gone in the last several years to trying to anticipate how the system is going to respond and react, not just with a few days of of frigid weather, but up to two weeks of it. And I know that you have been uh, involved in uh, modeling those kinds of uh, scenarios and understanding what we're going to have to do to... to, um, to keep reliability going. Yes. You would think we've had so much cold weather in the Northeast that it'd be hard to learn from one event, one cold weather event far away, but we always pay close attention to other people's issues, what their root causes were. Those could become our root causes. Um, One thing we're seeing out of Texas is, um, you know, when they needed to shed load, unfortunately, but it was the right thing to do. And we had not needed to shed load in New York for a long time. So I'm not going to say we have a lot of experience with load shedding. Uh, and it's because we do a lot of things right. But one of the things is with as part of some of that load shedding, unfortunately, based on preliminary reporting, that some critical gas load or facilities or electricity to run the gas system were shed either accidentally or not. But when that happened, then the gas capability, which was already low because of the cold weather, went lower, which resulted in more generators coming off, which resulted in more load shedding. So I can tell you we're working very hard and closely with our utilities to understand from their load script perspective. And when we order load shedding, it's the utilities that do that. They have the breakers and the equipment and the switches. We don't. We just monitor the, we, we just do the, we're in the balancing business to make sure gen and load balance. And as a last emergency step to maintain synchronism, if we need to shed load, then we'll do it to prevent a bigger blackout. But having said all that, we're really going back to say, um, we know we've asked these questions before, but please look hard, not only at the compressors, but any critical gas load. And please assure us and assure yourselves that, that those critical loads are not part of your load shedding script in the unlikely event that we needed to mm-hmm. shed load. 
And then it even moves into demand response. Are there any demand response providers that have customers that have gas critical loads? Let's hope that's not the case. We don't think that's the case, but we're double checking that. So already we're picking up things and we'll probably pick up more things that we can learn from Texas and just double check here if we haven't done that already. The other thing, Kevin, I can offer is with these tropical storms, and we only had two this summer, and uh, I don't know, uh, some summers it's zero, and sometimes it's a superstorm, Hurricane Sandy, that's devastating. There's a lot we do to prepare for that, including uh, restoring all the transmission and uh, committing additional generation such that we're prepared. If we lose some generation, we'll have the additional generation on, and we'll schedule flexible generation because in a heavy storm event, you can either lose generators at a faster rate than you're losing load, which means you need flexibility with the gen to pick up and uh, have it in the first place. But it can be the opposite. It can be we lose load as a result of distribution outages at a faster rate than we lose generators, at which point we have to dispatch them down. But the bigger point is our role is to be sure we're prepared to balance the system, to maintain 60 cycles for things that we don't know are going to happen. And you can have a tropical storm where it's just a rain and wind event and it's not impactful to transmission and generation, or you can have a storm And it can even be a tropical storm. It doesn't need to be a Category 5. Even a tropical storm, if it just sits over New York or Long Island or Connecticut or uh, upstate New York, if it just sits there, with time, it really does start to trip out important assets. So with every single projected storm, we just have to be equally prepared. There's a lot we do in coordination to get ready for that. But one of the really neat things that we do is we pay attention to what are the high and low tide schedules. And then what is the hurricane center predicting for storm surge? We certainly saw this, yeah. uh, this dynamic with Sandy and the yes. impact that that had. Uh, yes. With Sandy, the projected and actual storm surge was 9 to 11 feet. So that's surge added on top of the tide. And with Sandy, we had the very bad luck that it hit at about high tide. So the amount of flooding was high tide plus 9 to 11 feet. We um, prudently have the elevations at each of the generators that they can operate to. So when we add those two things together ahead of time, we can predict what are the high-risk generators that we may Mm -hmm. lose. Well, Wes, uh, just highlights, just as every time we speak to you, uh, you're able to um, portray for us the complexity of what goes into running the system, the split decisions the control room operators have to make, and that's just going to... uh, increase as we as we move to a more intermittent system and um, get closer to the 2030 and 2040 goals under the CLCPA and increasing expectations under state policy. So I want to thank you for joining us today and, uh, you know, promise to ask you back again. Maybe we can uh, get you back here after winter and more lessons learned. Yes. Yes. I hope it's a good news story. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, okay. Wes. And uh, we'll have you back as soon as we can. Okay, great. Yep. Thank you, Kevin. And th- thank you. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, the New York Independent System Operator, NISO for short, is responsible for reliably managing New York's power grid and energy markets and providing independent data to policymakers and the public. For more independent info, please visit the NISO blog at www.nyiso.com slash blog.